Well, good morning. What a joy to be here together at this, um, at this prayer breakfast. A while ago, I slipped into a pew in one of Britain's most beautiful cathedrals. It was a Wednesday, and it was dusk. I was there for evensong. And I was chilled to the bone at the moment of the service when the choir sang the words of Mary's Magnificat, which are recorded for us in Luke's Gospel. And these are the words they sang. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. I'd spent that day sitting in the public gallery of a court, supporting someone who was giving evidence in a criminal trial concerning childhood sexual abuse. Mary's words expressing hope on behalf of the poor, the humble, and the powerless felt especially meaningful that evening in the aftermath of the horrific trauma recounted. Several weeks later, I remembered those words of Mary again when I sat in a basement room in a different city with another woman giving testimony to investigators about the violent assault she had endured at the hand of a teacher who lectured in the institution where she worked. In our individual lives and in our national lives and in this wider cultural moment, it feels like there is so much loss, so much harm, and a greater awareness of injustice and trauma and the damage that these things cause. Justice movements recognize the potency of harm the harm inflicted on another human being when wrong is done. And we are a generation rightly crying out for justice. But that means when we really think about the pain of such harm, the word forgiveness might make some of us flinch. It might sound a little bit like a minimizing of harm. The former Archbishop of Cape Town, Desmond Tutu, held his post during the apartheid era in South Africa, winning the Nobel Peace Prize in 1984 for his opposition to the brutal regime. And he led the country's Truth and Reconciliation Commission after the election of Mandela. And he was frequently seen crying during the hearings as victims faced and challenged their torturers, telling their stories and reliving the atrocities. And the central purpose of that commission was to promote reconciliation and forgiveness among perpetrators and the victims of apartheid through a full disclosure of truth. Tutu wrote, forgiving is not forgetting. It's actually remembering. Remembering and not using your right to hit back. It's a second chance for a new beginning. And the remembering part is particularly important, especially if you don't want to repeat what happened. In other words, forgiveness and civil justice are not mutually exclusive. But in our quest for justice, is it possible that in 21st century Britain, we've lost the art of forgiveness? Instead, at the moment, it feels like something more akin to hatred and a lack of tolerance is all around us. 
from the impetus to punish a person whose ideas or behaviour we disagree with by shunning the transgressor, to lobbying to get someone fired or banned from speaking or publishing or lecturing, a lack of grace thrives. High-profile individuals have had to endure campaigns of harassment and intimidation in the name of justice. And everyone in this room involved in public life in some way will have experienced the volatile and ominous nature of interacting online and in other settings. But we're not alone in this experience. Ordinary people, including many school children today in Britain, teenagers are now fearful to express their thoughts in case they get it wrong and find themselves attacked. And once singled out, there is no hope for public forgiveness and much less for redemption. Public floggings are back in the group form of group shaming and boycotting. But forgiveness feels like it's gone, the lost art of a bygone age. Accountability is everything. Redemption feels impossible. So in this cultural moment, whilst free speech advocates and intellectuals may well wring their hands in despair, let's take note of what is bubbling under the surface of this cultural phenomenon. There's a passion for justice driving some of it. At its core, there is a stark refusal to roll over and just accept harm. And there's a rejection of the unqualified relativism of postmodernism. After all, something matters in absolute terms if injustice matters. Individuals matter, culture matters, society matters. Now, I believe the Christian faith has something really profound to say to us in this cultural moment that is prizing justice so highly, as well as having some important questions to pose. Firstly, isn't it worth considering why we might feel outrage at the suffering of this world or the perceived injustices we see around us at all? If this material world of biology, physics, and chemistry is all there is, why would we experience the level of disgust and fury at the unjust exploitation of human beings who are just the random product of a process of chance, followed by the brutal outcome of the survival of the fittest? Why should any of it matter if we're just here by chance, a confluence of biochemical reactions? Doesn't our rage at injustice tell us something about who we are as human beings? Now, of course, materialists and agnostics, as well as Christians and people of other faiths, will experience anger and outrage in the face of injustice and the suffering of others. But my question is, what can account for that anger? If human beings are created in the image of God, as the Old Testament puts it in the book of Genesis, that would apply whether a person believed it or not. If life is in some way sacred, we would have ways of knowing this to be true. The Hebrew poet in the Old Testament puts it like this. He says, God has set eternity in the hearts of people. I think our human rage at injustice in this cultural moment 
points towards that. It points beyond itself to the sacredness of life and the possibility of eternity in our hearts. The possibility that as human beings, we are infinitely precious and unimaginably loved by our creator, image bearers of the divine. So if our culture holds out little possibility of redemption or forgiveness, forgiveness begins to be seen as moral weakness. Is this really what we want? Redemption is one of the grand themes in literature and art of many civilizations, and it matters deeply to us as human beings. But forgiveness and redemption are being lost in our pursuit of justice to a cold cruelty that's resonant of the denouncements of authoritarian regimes in the past. Perhaps some in our generation have lost personal contact with such systems. At 47, I'm old enough to remember conversations with my grandparents who escaped from East Germany in order to avoid being taken by the Soviets to Siberia, coming to Britain with the clothes on their back. My father, who was just a small child on that day, is here today. They had observed and lived under the cruelty of totalitarian political systems, both right-wing and left, and they and we are wired for redemption, longing for something more than that, knowing that the possibility of forgiveness matters greatly. So the big question I want to suggest to you this morning is this. Is there such a thing as forgiveness and redemption that does not minimize harm or dehumanize those who have suffered horror? I want to suggest today that genuine faith shaped by the historic personality of Jesus Christ has something truly profound to offer us in this regard. The instinct in culture that harm matters so profoundly that a person must pay, must perhaps even die some kind of social or professional death for their transgression, points beyond itself to the echo of a story that has given meaning to millions of people around the world for over 2,000 years. Jesus of Nazareth, as God incarnate, God in flesh, willingly died by crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. And as we heard in the reading just earlier, his death is described in the New Testament as a ransom, an offering, and a sacrifice. He pays a price for the transgressions of the world that means that forgiveness can be real. The price we all intuitively sense must be paid for harm is actually paid by Jesus. Forgiveness may have been rejected by some as a moral weakness that denies the seriousness of the wrongdoing, but Christian forgiveness doesn't say the thing that happened didn't hurt, it wasn't wrong, or it doesn't matter. Forgiveness means the incident did hurt, it was wrong, and it does matter because every human being has been made in the image of God, our suffering matters profoundly. It matters at a transcendent level. But 
I have the power to forgive you, to release you from my vengeance, because I can trust that justice will ultimately be done. I can commit to supporting civil justice in this life, and I can trust that there will be eternal justice in the hands of God. The transgression and harm will be judged by a higher authority than you or me. If any of us truly repents and own our wrongdoing, we can be forgiven in an ultimate sense because someone has paid. The death of the Son of God in history points to the extraordinary cost of that. And it points to the vast value placed on you, including your suffering by loving God. Christian forgiveness underlines the seriousness of the hurt and evil that has occurred, since, uh, since forgiving it requires the suffering and the death of the Son of God. That is not cheap. In practical terms, I want to suggest that the concept of Christian forgiveness then is a gift to any culture. Forgiveness and redemption are possible and outrage at injustice has a foundation in reality. The Christian message, message acknowledges that wrongdoing is real and there is a real need for justice. And it challenges us to admit that all of us are flawed in some way ourselves. All of us also need forgiveness. The late Queen Elizabeth II noted in her 2016 Christmas broadcast, forgiveness lies at the heart of the Christian faith. It can heal broken families, it can restore friendships, and it can reconcile divided communities. It is in forgiveness that we feel the power of God's love. My dear friend is um, Archbishop of Jos in Plateau State, Northern Nigeria. His name is Benjamin Kawashi. And he has survived three assassination attempts and a brutal assault on his wife, Gloria, and the burning of his home the incredible suffering that this couple have been through have drove both of them to their knees. But they found the strength through their faith to forgive. And they found the strength to carry on serving the people of their community. Many of whom are the terrorists who kidnapped hundreds of, children, of Christian um, schoolgirls. The Kawashis have adopted 85 orphans and live in a place of incredible tension with the most outstanding joy and peace I have ever seen. They live in a flow of forgiveness that builds schools and trains leaders to love across, dif across difference. They build churches that serve communities, that lead to friendships across divides. Forgiveness in action is beautiful and compelling, and it helps rebuild a broken world. The Christian offer of forgiveness is for everyone. To receive it 
and to be empowered to give it. To be offered forgiveness I don't deserve, that doesn't minimize any of the harm that I have caused, and yet affirms my belovedness, is the heart of God's forgiveness in Christ. And through the ages, this forgiveness has had the power to change the trajectory of a life, turning me around, setting me on a new path of goodness, beauty, and truth, instead of floundering in wrongdoing. This forgiveness also has the power to liberate me from ongoing harm when I've been the victim, since it liberates me from the burden of accomplishing vengeance, which is a feat beyond me. And it frees me to live totally free from bitterness and in peace. All of us in this room this morning are invited to receive forgiveness and to receive the power to forgive others. I believe the power to forgive may just be the greatest gift that the Christian story can offer our age. The report um, done after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of South Africa concluded this. We have been privileged to help to heal a wounded people, though we ourselves have been in Henri Nouron's profound and felicitous phrase, wounded healers. When we look around us at some of the conflict areas of the world, it becomes increasingly clear that there is not much of a future without forgiveness, without reconciliation. God has blessed us richly so that we might be a blessing to others. Quite improbably, we as South Africans have become a beacon of hope to others locked in deadly conflict that peace, that a just resolution is possible. If it could happen in South Africa, then it can certainly happen anywhere else. Such is the exquisite divine sense of humor. So let me end with that one phrase again. I believe the power to forgive and to receive forgiveness may just be the greatest gift that the Christian story can offer our age. Thank you for listening.